Good morning. Let's pray. Father, it is indeed our heart's desire to burn for you. Lord, we don't want to go through the motions. We don't want to be simply a religious people whose hearts are far from you. But Lord, we, we desire for you to be pleased with our lives, with our worship, with the words that fall from our lips. Lord, we want to know you. We want to love you. And we want to do that with all of our heart, giving you our very best. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be our teacher here this morning. Pray that you would open up our eyes and our ears and our minds that we might see and hear and know the wonderful things that are in your word for us to know. And Lord, I pray that you would conform us to the image of your son. And if there's anyone that's here this morning or watching online who doesn't have a saving relationship with you, Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. So Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Could I trouble somebody maybe to hit the lights over there and help me see my notes a little bit better here this morning? Um, I brought something here this morning. You're good. You're good. Thank you, sir. <clears throat> Anybody tell what this is from this distance? It, it's, it's not a quarter. It's a little bit bigger. It's a half dollar. It's a half dollar. Yeah. And uh, it's got uh, John F. Kennedy on the front side and it's got an eagle on the back. So it, it, it's like every other coin has two sides to it. This morning, I want to suggest to you that love is like a coin. It has two sides to it. One side is expressed with kind words tender mercies, affection. The other side is expressed with warnings, rebukes, and correction. And sometimes the most loving thing you can do is to tell others what they don't want to hear. Right, parents? Yeah, yeah I heard that, amen, yep. Sometimes it is the most loving thing you can do. Now, it may not be perceived as a loving thing to do, but discipline and correction is actually a way of showing that you care, that you truly love another person. And in the book of Malachi, God expresses his love for his children by rebuking them. In love, he confronts them in their sin in the hopes that they might repent and enjoy the other side of his love, the other side of the coin, if you would. 
So this morning, as we get ready to launch into a new sermon series here in the book of Malachi, as usual, we need to give get some introductory information uh, under our belt. Um, the, the name Malachi itself, the Hebrew word Malachi, literally means my messenger or messenger of the Lord. Now, to whom was Malachi writing this letter? Who is it addressed to? Well, it's addressed to the remnant of the nation of Israel that came back from Babylonian captivity about a hundred years or so before the time of Malachi. And the events take place in Judah, not an unfamiliar uh, spot on the map. And speaking of maps, I'm going to put one up for you so you can see. Um, whoops, go back one here. I didn't realize that was up. And if you'll notice, here is Judea, and there's Jerusalem. But this is all that's left of the entire nation of Israel that existed prior to their captivity. Where you see Samaria, that is where Israel used to be. But Israel was carted off into captivity uh, by the Assyrians. And then Judah was carried off into captivity by the Babylonians. Now I want you to just notice down here, there's this place called Idumea. And it says Edomites. But you'll notice down here, the country of Edom. We're going to come back to that because that's going to be an important part of our text here this morning. And so with, um, with Israel back in Judah, things are not the same as what they were when they left. In fact, their land mass has shrunk considerably, roughly only 600 square miles the population was only at about 150,000 people. So it was very small. They had limited self-rule, and they were under constant oppression by those uh, neighbors of theirs that surrounded them. And Judah had no king sitting on the throne of David, and they were still under the thumb of Persian rule. So that just gives you a little bit of, of, of context here. Now, Malachi was probably written somewhere between 450 and 430 B.C. He's believed to be a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah. And his ministry took place roughly 100 years after Cyrus, uh, the king of Persia, decreed um, that the Jews could return to their homeland, which... Um, allowed them then, under the leadership of Haggai and Zechariah, to rebuild the temple, which was completed in about 516 B.C. And then the city walls were rebuilt, you know, under the leadership of who? Nehemiah. So by Malachi's day, the people's heart had grown cold, which is almost hard to fathom that in just about two generations, after having spent all that time in captivity because of their sin, now they're back and their hearts, which initially um, were on fire for God, grew cold. 
Despite the fact that they were back in their homeland, the temple had been rebuilt and the promises of the coming Messiah were given to them. So the people again began to fall away. And you have to understand that part of what was happening here is they had a, an expectation that when the temple was rebuilt, that all of the messianic prophecies were going to come to pass. They expected to see it and to see it right away. And when they didn't, they began to think that perhaps God was disinterested. Perhaps he was on vacation. Perhaps he was taking a nap. He had forgotten about them. They looked at the current temple and they realized this this did not compare. It paled in significance to the temple of Solomon and the temple, the great temple that was yet to come. So they felt as if God had abandoned them when in reality, it was they who abandoned God. So Malachi is a call to both people and priests to repent. To repent of their corrupt worship practices, intermarriage, idolatry, marital unfaithfulness, unbiblical divorce, social injustice, and the robbing of God in their giving or lack thereof. Again, you would have thought that they would have learned their lesson, but here they are repeating the same mistakes that led to their captivity in the first place. So Malachi, if you're looking for a theme, it's simply this. Malachi addresses the faithlessness and the half-hearted worship of both priests and people. His prophecy is a wake-up call to true faithfulness and God-honoring worship. And it is a message that I think we desperately need to hear today. Now, the structure of the book is interesting. There are six disputations. It's not a word we use very often, but think about it this way. There are six arguments or six speeches that God makes in this book. And it's interesting, they come in the form of the Socratic method. You guys have heard of that, the Socratic method? Uh, or, or you might know it as the dialectical method. It comes from Socrates, who was a Greek philosopher, who used questions as a means of arriving at the truth. Technically speaking, it is thesis, antithesis, synthesis. The idea here is, is that there is a propositional truth or a statement that is made, and then there is an objection or a question which leads to deeper thinking on it, which then in turn leads to resolution or to an answer. The idea here was rather than just telling somebody what to believe, it was designed to get the student to come to self-realization, to understand the truth for themselves through this process. Jesus used the same approach. In his, so I'm not giving Socrates credit here. I'm just telling you it's known as the Socratic method. So I have simplified the six disputations in the book. 
And I'm going to give them to you here. If you want to write them down, you can. But you'll find uh, the references as well. The first is God's love for Israel. Second, God rebukes the unfaithfulness of the priests. And not to leave the people out, he also rebukes them in chapter 2, verse 10 through 16. And then the fourth disputation is on divine justice. The fifth is on robbing God. And the sixth deals with the day of the Lord. And then the book concludes with a couple of verses uh, that serve as a call to observe the Mosaic law and, 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 and a promise of the coming of Elijah. So at, probably at this point, some of you might be thinking, all right, so why are we studying Malachi? Well, Malachi is an important book for us to study for, for many reasons. One, I think, is it, it records a time in history that is not unlike our own. The people maintained an external form of religion, but they didn't honor God. It was hypocritical worship in many ways. It was the worship of self in many ways. The people were going through the motions, ignoring God's commands and doing as they pleased. And much of this was driven by their short-sightedness. The short-sightedness of their captivity, the short-sightedness of all that God had done previous to that as they looked back through history. And then also their self-centered approach to life. They felt like everything revolved around them. They lived a kind of, what have you done for me lately kind of life. Yeah, everything that you did, God, in the past, that's great, that's wonderful, but what have you done for me lately? Absent were the grand miracles of the past. Absent was even the divine providence, the, the remarkable providence of God that was experienced while they were in captivity in Persia that was recorded for us in the book of Esther. They weren't content to live faith-filled lives. They wanted God to wow them like he had in the past. They wanted a temple like Solomon's. They wanted to see God execute divine justice now. Be careful what you wish for. But what was really needed here was genuine faith. Not faith that for all practical purposes is merely a decision to follow God when it's convenient to you or when things are going well, but a lasting commitment that is sustained by true faith regardless of your circumstances. This is what is needed today amongst God's people. There are too many Christians who want to be wowed by God. They feel like they need to see something miraculous in order to have their faith validated. They want some proof or evidence beyond Scripture that screams, God is real. Well, folks, let me tell you, God is real. 
I don't need to see a miracle to understand that. I need to pick up this book and read it and believe it. There's enough evidence given to us to know that God is real, that he is who he says he is, and what he did, he did for us. Malachi is a reminder that we are called to walk by faith and not by sight. It's a call to us to walk in obedience to God's word every single day of our lives. And as the last book in in the Old Testament, Malachi carries special significance. This is the last word that God gave his people in the Old Testament. The last communication that he would give to them until God sent the angel Gabriel 400 years later to proclaim the birth of Christ. So you have to think this has got to be an important message. A message that not only closes out the Old Testament, but paves the way and makes makes the New Testament possible. And during that 400-year period in between, there wasn't another prophet like Malachi or Jeremiah or Elijah or anyone. It felt like dead silence. But let me tell you something, it wasn't silent because the people had God's word in the Old Testament. They had the law. They had God's revelation at their disposal. Now it's time to see, will they stand on their own two feet? Will they be prepared for the Messiah? So with that being said, let's begin our study in the book of Malachi. If you have your Bibles, open up to Malachi. Again, last book in the Old Testament. Should be easy to find. If you need a Bible, we've got some on the back tables there in the back. And I'm going to put the first five verses up, but I'm going to focus just briefly on verse one. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now, where were the people living? In Judah. But here we read the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel, not the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom was no more. So by referring to Israel, what we learn is that the divided kingdom is no longer divided. It is unified. It is one people once again, and they are residing in the land of Judah. And so when we read the address to Israel, we are reading an address to the entirety of God's people. So let's continue reading. The Lord says here, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. 
I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So here we come to our first disputation. And it's simply God declaring his love for his people. I have loved you, says the Lord. God, through the prophet Malachi, declared the reality of his love for his people, something that should have been obvious to them, but wasn't. And God had set his affection upon them long before they were a great nation. So that's what gets the ball rolling here. I have loved you. The people then question his love. And the Lord speaks for them. He says, but you say, how have you loved us? This is amazing. Despite all that God had done for them, despite all that God had done for their forefathers, the people doubted God's love. And it showed up by the way they lived their lives. It showed up with their worthless offerings and their hypocritical worship. Now that should not surprise you or me. Because you will never love and serve a God who you don't believe loves you. If you doubt God's love, what incentive is there for you to love him in return? Doubting or questioning God's love is often the starting point for disobedience and unbelief. It starts there by questioning God, doubting God. Think, think about it. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? Eve doubted or questioned God's character. And so she, she took of the fruit. She ate. She thought God was holding out on her. Satan came along and tempted her and, and said, hey, you know, has God said this, that, you know, don't eat from that tree? You know, well, he knows that if you eat from that tree. See, God's holding back from you. And so Eve took the forbidden fruit. And I think Satan wants us to think that God is holding back on us too. He wants us to think that God is capricious. He wants us to question the character of God. I mean, it's as if back in Malachi's day, he, he, he whispers in their ears and he says things like, oh, look how hard life is. Hey, where is God? Where, where is the fulfillment of his promises? Have you looked at this temple? I mean, this is nothing compared to the temple you guys once had. And where are the crops? Where is your king? 
If God really cared about you, he would fill in the blank. And how many of us ask similar types of questions of God? When life doesn't go as planned, it's easy to doubt his love, to doubt his goodness. Oftentimes when we're hurting, we feel like we need someone to blame, and God is a, is a big target. And oftentimes we, we may, may ask or at least think things like, God, where are you? Don't you know what I'm going through? Don't you know what I'm experiencing? Why did you allow this to happen to me? God, I thought you loved me. Why? Why? I I mean, I've been there. I've been there. And and I'll tell you, I ask those questions because I don't know him as well as I ought to know him. God's not afraid of our questions. Are we afraid of his answers? Because God answers them. He answers them and he says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Now that's kind of a weird response to that. You know, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Well, how does that answer anything? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now you have to remember a little bit of history. Jacob's name was changed, right? What was his name afterwards? Israel. Israel. God addresses the people's short-sightedness by giving them a brief history lesson. That's what he's doing here. God first reminds them of his love in his choice of Israel and his rejection of Esau. Now, the terms love and hate often trip people up here, so I suggest that it is best understood by chosen and not chosen, as opposed to love and hate. But that's the essence of what he's getting at here. And what is important to note is that in choosing Jacob, God circumvents the cultural requirements of the day in that the firstborn had primacy. The firstborn had all all the rights and the blessings. And Jacob was not the firstborn son. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, you can turn over if you'd like to, it's not up on the screen, but in Romans 9, verses 10 through 13, we read this. And not only so, but when Rebekah conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, and he quotes Malachi, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. 
What we need to see here is that God's choice was not based on anything either of them had done. They hadn't even been born yet. Divine election is not determined or dependent upon human desire or merit. Think about this. God chose Abraham out of all the peoples of the earth to work through. He chose Isaac instead of his half-brother Ishmael. He chose Jacob over Esau, and he chose the people of Israel over and above every other nation on earth that he might work his will in the earth that through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the people of Israel, and ultimately the Messiah himself, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Scripture makes it clear that he did this solely on the basis of his sovereign choice. He chose to set his affection upon them. Moses writes in Deuteronomy chapter 7, again, not on the screen, God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Speaking of Israel, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." I mean, he, it doesn't get any clearer than that. I didn't choose you because how wonderful you were, how great you were, how mighty you were, how many you were. I chose you because I loved you. I have set my affection upon you. I love, absolutely love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says that I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. I am sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I could never find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Let's face it. The doctrine of election is not an easy doctrine to understand. It has been hotly debated for centuries. I'm not going to solve it here this morning for you. But as I have said many, many times that when we come to the scriptures, we have to preach what's there, not what we want to see. And allow God to work in our hearts and to reconcile difficult passages of scripture um, but, and, I, and, and so what you're hearing me say is, I don't claim to fully understand this myself, but I know what the Bible says. I know what Scripture says. Spurgeon adds, by the way, whatever may be said about the doctrine of election, 
It is written in the word of God as with an iron pen, and there is no getting rid of it. To me, it is one of the sweetest and most blessed truths in the whole of Revelation, and those who are afraid of it are so because they do not understand it. If they could but know that the Lord had chosen them, it would make their hearts dance for joy. So regardless of how you feel about the doctrine of election, one thing you must not do, that is dismiss it simply because you don't like it. I was reading this past week in a commentary and I came across a paragraph that I thought was very helpful and informative here. It says this, it says, the reason why election is referred to in Malachi 1 is not to create a sense of exclusion. Instead, election is deployed by the prophet to comfort and reassure the people of God. God's electing love is not based on performance, position, or power. It is based on his prerogative. The input you have in election is the same input you had in choosing your parents. The country you were born in or the city in which you were raised. In the same way, the Jewish audience of Malachi had done nothing to deserve God's grace and love. But they had it. They had it. So God reminds them of his love in his sovereign choice of Israel. But he also reminds them of his love in his judgment of Edom. And if the people doubted God's love, all they had to do is look at the fate of Edom. Now the Edomites were descendants of Esau. And they had been a thorn in the flesh of Israel from their wanderings, from before the time that they entered into the land of Canaan. And then, after God judged Judah and took them off to captivity, they then had the audacity to come into Judah and into Jerusalem and loot what remained there in the country. So God judged them for their wickedness, and as a result, their country was destroyed. Their homes and their towns would never again be rebuilt. Their land was left desolate. And this happened between probably around 550 B.C. and 400 B.C. And the remaining Edomites were then forced to settle in that plot of land I showed you at the beginning. Idumea just south of Judah. That's why they're there. It's because God judged them for how they treated his people. Now, imagine how that would have hit you if you were there in Malachi's day. The, the fact that Israel was chosen by God and miraculously restored back to their homeland while Edom was wiped off the face of the earth. 
What more proof would they need of God's love for them? So I want to ask, what about you? What proof do you need that God loves you? How do you know God loves you? I think the answer is the same that God gave the people and the priests in the book of Malachi. The proof is found in Scripture. The proof is found in what God has already said and done for us. It is found in the person and work of Christ. It is found at the cross. That's how we know God loves us. Paul writes in Romans 5, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross of Christ is the ultimate proof of God's love. And like, like his people Israel, his love for us is not based on anything in us. We do not deserve his love. We could never merit his love. Scripture tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were alienated from God. We were under the curse of sin. We were under the wrath of God. We were without hope. That's the message in the New Testament. Until Jesus. That's what we were until Jesus, until he came and rescued us from our sin and redeemed us and restored us to God. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 1, chapter 4, excuse me, Ephesians 1, verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. We may not fully understand or appreciate the doctrine of election, but it is absolute proof of his love for us. It's a humbling doctrine. It truly is. For it eliminates all boasting. It annihilates pride. Just as Israel could do nothing to earn or deserve God's love, neither can we. God loves us unconditionally. It's not an I love you if. It's an I love you, period. Do you realize how freeing that is? But that's not all. 
There's nothing we can do to make God love us more than he does. You can't get God to love you any more than he does. He loves you fully and completely. But wait, there's still more. Sounds like one of those commercials. There is nothing we can do to make him love us any less. So he loves us unconditionally. He loves us completely, fully. We can't get him to love us anymore, but we can't get him to love us any less either. Gosh, if that doesn't make you want to jump up and shout hallelujah, I don't think anything will. Hallelujah. We don't have to live in fear of what I call daisy theology. You know, you heard of that? He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. We don't. God has proved his love for us. I love what R.C. Sproul said. He said, we are secure, not because we hold tightly to Jesus, but because he holds tightly to us. And I suggest his grip is far better than ours. So what should be our response? Well, it really depends on whether or not you're a child of God. If you have repented of your sins and received Christ as your Lord and Savior, then the only fitting response is to love him in return with all your heart. Giving him your very best. Our hearts should be filled with awe and wonder and an ever-deepening gratitude for what God has done for us. If you're here this morning and you have not yet turned from your sins and embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I urge you, don't leave here today without doing business with God and surrendering your life to Him. Today is the day of salvation. Do not put off to tomorrow. You have no guarantee of tomorrow. If you sense God tugging on your heart, drawing you to himself, understand how blessed you are, how how gracious God is being to you in the moment. Don't turn away from him. I'd love to talk with you after service if, if that's you. I'd love to pray with you. Remember, love is like a coin, right? Two sides. One side expressed with kind words, with tender mercies, with much affection. The other side expressed in warnings and rebukes and correction. If we are to please God, if we are to be like Christ... We need both. We need both in our lives. I hope and I pray and I will be praying fervently over the next several weeks and months that we will be receptive to God's admonishment so that we might experience the other side of the coin. Let's pray. Father... Wow. Your love is so amazing. We cannot comprehend it. We cannot 
earn it. All we can do is humbly accept it. Father, it's my prayer that if there's anyone here this morning or watching online that has yet to surrender their life to you, that today would be the day that they do that. Father, I pray that you would just enlarge our hearts, that we might understand this beautiful doctrine and allow it, Lord, to just permeate in our minds and in our hearts, that it would transform us, that we would come to the realization that you have set your affection upon us. You have sent Jesus to die for us. You have given us your Holy Spirit, and we have a home in heaven waiting for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for your great love. Lord God, thank you for your word. May your word work in us so that we might glorify you in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen.